If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Jonah. This morning we will conclude our study through this little book of prophecy, this minor prophet, as we cover chapter 4 today. Next week, I want to invite you back as we start through a short study through the book of Jude. So we're going to take a four or five week uh, journey through one of the shortest books of the New Testament, but one of the richest ones, and I believe uh, one of the ones that uh, is certainly most applicable to uh, the life of the New Testament church in 21st century America. And so I want to invite you to come back as we walk through the book of Jude and just take our time and do a deep dive on that short letter. But this morning we're going to be in chapter 4 of Jonah. Yesterday I had uh, the opportunity to drive down to the airport to pick up my wife. She had gone to uh, Richmond, Virginia for a conference. And so uh, I was driving down to pick her up. And I checked the, the flight status right before I left. And lo and behold, um, it, it, it wasn't just on time. It was early. And so I was already behind schedule at that point. I wanted to meet her right in the arrivals lobby and not have her wait at the curb. And so I was rushing to get down there, but thankfully, um, I have a peach pass, and so I got in the peach pass lane, and I'm tooling down there. There was actually a good amount of traffic yesterday uh, for some reason, who knows, but I was in the pass piece, and I was, pass peach, I was in the peach pass lane, uh, just, just heading on by all of that, just, just making a good old time. And wouldn't you know what happened? What happened? Somebody crossed the double white lines right in front of me, and the expressway became a poke-along way. And they just poked. It's an expressway. You know what expressway means, right? You go at least the the speed of traffic, maybe a little bit more than the speed of traffic, and they weren't. Uh, So uh, it it was not an expressway any longer for me. And um, I lost my temper. I lost my temper, yes didn't say anything I shouldn't have said, at least not with the window down, and didn't make any gestures, but I lost my temper, and I I stewed the rest of the way down to Spaghetti Junction when I had to get out of the Peach Pass Lane because it was just me. I had a bad attitude. I needed a realignment in my heart attitude. Twelve and a half years ago, I've shared this story with you before, We had nine families leave our church over my view of Reformed theology. And I had a bad attitude about it. I didn't get angry, but I turned inward and I sunk into depression over that. And I was there for a number of weeks. I had a bad attitude. I needed realignment with God's heart. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe God has asked you to do something that you just don't want to do. You need a realignment with God. Or maybe he doesn't come through in a way that you really thought he would, that you expected he should. You need a realignment with God. Well, Jonah was a prophet of God, and he needed a realignment as well. 
he was out of alignment with God. When we last saw Jonah, he had just finished taking God's message, warning the people of Nineveh of impending judgment. And what happened? Well, the people of Nineveh repented of their wickedness and their evil, and they believed the God of Israel, and God relented from the disaster and spared the whole city. But where was Jonah's heart in the midst of all of that? We kind of lose track of Jonah for a while, don't we, in the book of Jonah? We didn't see him or hear from him since the beginning of chapter 3 when he decides to finally obey God and bring that message to the people of Nineveh. After that, we don't hear of him until today. So what's been going on in his heart? What's he thinking? What's he feeling? How is he reacting? Well, let's read Jonah 4 and find out for ourselves. And let's back up to verse 10 of chapter 3 and read from there. When God saw what the people of Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it's been already this morning to sing about your steadfast love 
that you are a gracious and merciful God who relents from disaster when your people repent. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for preserving it throughout the ages such that we can trust that what we hold in our hands is your very breath. And now we ask, God, that you would attend to the reading of your word with your spirit, not just so that we would be better informed as to what it means, but, Lord, so that you might use your word, plant it deep in our hearts, to change us and transform us to look more like your Son, so that in and through our lives you might be glorified. Father, we pray for those among us, in our hearing, in this very room, that have yet to place their faith in your Son, Jesus, as their only hope for rescue from deserved judgment because of their rebellion against you. God, we pray that you would make the good news of Jesus Christ abundantly clear to them this morning. And we pray that you would grant them faith and repentance to trust in Jesus Christ so that you might redeem another trophy of grace for your glory. Father, do what you will in our hearts and in our lives this morning so that you be more glorified in them and through them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah also had a bad attitude. He was out of sync with God. He was, we might say, out of alignment with God. Jonah wasn't happy in the least that God had shown mercy to the people of Nineveh. In fact, he was flat mad about it. And he wasn't just angry after God relents of the disaster that he was going to bring to Nineveh. Verse 1 of chapter 4 reads, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The, the grammar of that Hebrew phrase is a doubling of the Hebrew word for evil or wicked, raha. And one commentator notes that what the author is doing here is expressing Jonah's dissatisfaction with God in the absolute most strongly way, strong, strongest way possible in the Hebrew language. Jonah was burning with anger. He considered this to be an exceptional wickedness that Nineveh had been spared. And so there are three ways that we see Jonah out of alignment with God. First, he was out of alignment with God in his affections. We're out of alignment with God is that we find ourselves loving what God hates and hating what God loves. God was pleased with the repentance of the Ninevites, and so he was pleased to relent of destroying them. But Jonah wasn't. Jonah was categorically not pleased with the repentance of the Ninevites. And it greatly angered him that God had relented from the disaster. Church, anytime we find ourselves hating people made in the image of God, whether it's because they do something that is morally reprehensible and wicked, or whether it's because they're somehow different from us, different skin color, different language, different religion, different worldview, 
But if we hate them and we find ourselves wanting them wiped off the face of the earth, or to put it more gently, if we find ourselves wanting God to show them no mercy, then we are out of alignment with God. When we're out of alignment with God in our affections, we hate what he loves and we love what he hates. God loves people. And if we hate anyone, then we're out of alignment with God. God hates sin. And if we love sin by giving ourselves over to it or delighting in it, then we're out of alignment with God. 1 John 2 verses 15 and 16 say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And just in case we were to think that the world here refers to people, John goes on to say, for all that is in the world, namely the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Are you out of alignment with God and your affections? If we this morning were to put your life on display on the screen behind me and we were to see how you spend the bulk of your time, money, and attention and we were to all see what puts a smile on your face, what puts a frown on your face, and what it is that really makes you angry, would that reveal that you are in or out of alignment with the heart of God? Does your heart beat with the heartbeat of God? Loving what he loves and hating what he hates? Or does it beat out of sync with the heartbeat of God? Second, Jonah was also out of alignment with God in his motives. He said at the beginning of verse 2, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, I knew it. I knew you would do this, God. I knew this was going to happen. And unless there remained any doubt as to why he ran from God, he admits then, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now, we probably would have guessed that this was his heart motive back in chapter 1 when he ran from God. But now Jonah removes any suspicion that he might have had some kind of okay motives when he ran from God. A resounding no, he did not. He, he didn't run from God out of fear, fearing that the people of Nineveh would attack him or kill him because of the message that he preached to them. He didn't run from God out of fear. He ran because he knew that if he brought a message of warning, a message of punishment, that the Ninevites were likely to repent, and then he knew enough about God that God would relent. And he so didn't want that that he got on a ship and headed for Tarshish. Bottom line, he didn't want what God wanted. His motives were out of alignment with God's. Are yours? Are mine? 
if what God wants from me is holiness and godliness, if what he wants from me is, is faithful engagement with his mission, is that what I want? Is that what you want? Or are your motives out of alignment with God's? And then thirdly, Jonah was out of alignment in his allegiances. Whom was, was Jonah serving when he ran from God? To whom was he giving his allegiance when he did that? Well, it wasn't to God. He was giving allegiance to himself. He was serving himself, not God. And he fell out of alignment in his allegiances precisely because he knew what the God of Israel was like. He knew his character. He knew Yahweh's character. And, and, and knowing what he knew about God, that was the reason that he chose to serve himself rather than that God. He, con he concludes at the end of verse 2, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And can't you just hear the sarcasm in his tone? We should say those words with awe and thankfulness and worship that our God is a gracious God. He is merciful. He is slow, thank goodness, slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love and that he relents from disaster. Those things are true about God. And when we find ourselves out of alignment with him, that's what we need to believe because that's what's going to bring us back to him. But Jonah says these words with a, with a biting sarcasm and tone of vitriol. I knew who you were, God, that you were merciful, that you're slow to anger. I knew that about you, and I knew that you would relent from disaster because you're a gracious and merciful God. And so he knew that if the people of Nineveh repented, this God of Israel, who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he would relent from that disaster. And so he made a conscious decision to reject God's plan for him. But don't we know that in rejecting God's plan for him, he was in fact rejecting God himself. In favor of serving himself over God. And so here he is now, after the fact, after the 40 days had passed, after 40 days of waiting for God to bring the destruction on Nineveh that he had just preached to them about, and nothing happened, and he says, I knew it, God. I, I knew this would happen. This is why I went to Tarshish. It's why I ran away. Jonah gave allegiance to himself instead of to God. He gave allegiance to himself because tragically, get this, tragically, who God was, was not the kind of God that Jonah wanted in that moment. Instead of a God who was gracious and merciful, in that moment, Jonah wanted to serve a God 
who was spiteful and vengeful. And that's not who God was. And so God chose to serve, Jonas chose to serve himself rather than God. Friends, we know, as we talk about allegiance, we know that we owe our God all of our allegiance. But especially so, if he has rescued us from our sin and delivered us from what we deserve by grace through faith in his son. You see, before God saved us by grace through faith in Jesus, we served self. We only served self. We could only serve self. Hopelessly stained by our own depravity, we were only going to serve self forever. But in bringing us to faith and in satisfying God's wrath against our sin, he purchased our allegiance. And so now more than ever, we owe our allegiance to him alone. He is our God. He is our Lord. He is our master. And we owe our allegiance to him alone. And yet we so often find ourselves still serving self rather than serving God. And so Jonah is out of alignment with God. He's out of alignment with God in his affections, his motives, and his allegiances. And ultimately, this leads Jonah to a place of hopelessness. After God relents to bring disaster against Nineveh, that which Jonah wants so deeply and so badly, after it doesn't happen, Jonah sinks into depression and he becomes hopeless. He says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah loses hope, which church is what eventually happens to all of us if we remain stubborn in our misalignment with God. Jonah concludes that it's better for him to die than to live in a world where, to put it generically, things just don't work out the way he wants them to. Because that's really what we're talking about here, right? He was so out of alignment with God and his affections, his motives, and his allegiance and so stubborn in his misalignment that he's lost all hope that what? He's lost all hope that God was ever going to bend to him. God wasn't going to bend to Jonah. God wasn't going to change for Jonah. And so Jonah ultimately loses hope. You see, when we find ourselves out of alignment with God, our hope for being realigned to God doesn't lie in God being realigned back to us, but rather in us being realigned back to him. God, the, God is the true north, not us. He doesn't bend to our way. We must bend to his way, his affections, his motives, and allegiance to him alone. And so God begins a project on Jonah. 
he begins to realign him to his heart and his will and his ways. And he begins Jonah's realignment there in verse 4 when he asks Jonah this question, do you do well to be angry? What a great question. Jonah has lost his mind. He is throwing the temper tantrum to end all temper tantrums. He is, woe is me to the very end. I knew you would do this, God. That's why I ran away from you to begin with. I knew the kind of God that you were. And God says, do you do well to be angry? Why does he ask Jonah that question? It's, it's clearly rhetorical. And the assumed answer is, of course not. <laughs> of course, Jonah does not do well to get angry about things not working out the way he really wants them to. Neither do I do well to lose my temper at slowpoke Polly who gets in to the express lane in front of me. Neither do I well do I do well to become so inwardly pitied that I get depressed over families leaving the church. In asking this question of Jonah, God was leading Jonah to evaluate his life, evaluate where he was. Three times in this passage, Jonah, uh, God is getting Jonah to evaluate himself, evaluate his life based on questioning him. He asked the very same question again in verse 9 that we'll get to in a moment. And then in verse 11 at the end, he asks a different question, all seeking to get Jonah to look at his life and see where he's out of alignment with him. God asks us questions too. Ken, the way you lost your temper with the guy who got in the express lane, do you have the right to get angry at that person? Ken, the tone that you used with your wife the other night, was that edifying? Was that encouraging? What was going on in your heart? Ken, the money that you spent on that thing, was that a wise stewardship of my money? Ken, do you see your neighbors over there? Have you done everything that you could to reach them for me with my gospel? God asks us questions as we look at our lives against the backdrop, backdrop of his word through his spirit in order to get us to evaluate ourselves and see where we're out of alignment and begin to bring us back into alignment with his heart and his ways. He was leading Jonah to evaluate himself and I think God uses his word and he uses his people in biblical community, those who are close to us, to ask us questions about our life and how we're living and evaluate where we might be out of alignment with him. And here's my encouragement to you, friends. When those questions come, stop and listen to them. Stop and consider them. And stop and prayerfully answer them and then prayerfully let God begin to bend you back into alignment with him.
That's why God asks these questions of Jonah. But he doesn't just ask questions. He also gave Jonah an object lesson here in this passage, in this chapter, to show Jonah just how out of alignment he was with God. Now, chronologically, as we look at the story of Jonah, the story of Jonah ends with verse 4. Most Bible scholars believe that verses 5 through 11 are actually a flashback. See, verses 1 through 4 take place after the 40 days have ended. And in the end, God did not bring destruction on the people of Nineveh. Jonah says, I knew it. God says, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? And then beginning with verse 5, the writer now goes back to chapter 3. And verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4 take place between verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. At the end of verse 9 of chapter 3, all the people of Nineveh, including the king himself, are repenting of their evil and wickedness. And in verse 10, God relents and doesn't bring destruction. Verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4 is what happens. Remember I said we kind of lost track of Jonah? Well, here's what's happening to Jonah in those 40 days. Beginning with verse 5, Jonah went out. And here's here's the reason. Why in the world would you do that? That's a literary uh, tactic. In order to to use this flashback and end the letter with this in order to bring emphasis to this object lesson. So what's he trying to teach them? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. So remember, he entered the city from the west. It was a three days journey to go all the way through the city. It was a big city. He comes out the other side. Now he's on the east of the city. He goes up on a hill. He overlooks the city. And he makes a booth for himself there. He sat under that in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And so this is before the 40 days had elapsed. And for Jonah, there's still hope. There's still hope that he's going to send fire and brimstone. He's, he's waiting for a Sodom and Gomorrah moment. Maybe it's still going to happen. I'm going to sit up here and, and watch it. Build myself a little booth and watch God rain down wrath on those evil Ninevites. And what does God do? Well, he appoints a plant. And this is some plant. It's a miracle plant, just like the miracle of the fish. And this plant grows over Jonah in a day and provides him with shade. And oh, how Jonah loves this plant. We're told there in verse 6 that he was exceedingly glad about this plant. He's very happy about the plant because it's providing him with shade from the sun. Oh, I love this plant. Good plant. Then what does God do? The very next day, he appoints a worm. You see the sovereign hand of God working in Jonah's life, don't we? Just as he appointed a fish, he appoints a plant. And then he appoints a worm. And he tells the worm, attack the plant. And like it's a miracle fish and a miracle plant, this is a miracle worm because it eats it up in a day. It attacks the plant such that it withers, it goes away. And so God provides shade. He provides comfort to Jonah. 
And then he takes it away by the worm that he appoints. But that's not all that God does. Then God appoints a scorching east wind such that the sun is going to beat down on Jonah almost like an air fryer, such that he becomes faint. And Jonah is so upset about all of this that he asks God to take his life, concluding at the end of verse 8, it is better for me to die than to live, which, by the way, is exactly what he chronologically will later conclude after seeing that Nineveh is spared after 40 days. It's better for me to die than to live. And then God graciously speaks to him in verses 9 and following. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Same question that he's going to ask Jonah later over Jonah's anger at the Ninevites being spared. But here the question is about Jonah's anger concerning the plant. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for this plant? And Jonah answers and says, yes. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. How stubborn is this prophet in his misalignment with God's heart? Yes, I do very well to be angry at this plant. Angry enough to die, which just shows how out of alignment with God Jonah really is at this point. He's so angry about the plant being taken away that he wants to die. But Jonah's answer here to God also means that he has, in essence, taken the bait of God's object lesson here. Jonah's now played his hand. And he showed God and he showed all of us what's most important to him. And what's most important to him is, is, is that which gets him the most worked up, the most concerned about, the most compassionate about, the most angry about. And for Jonah, pitifully, he is most concerned about the plant. And so now that Jonah has taken the bait in this object lesson, the Lord reveals the point of the object lesson in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said to him, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did, did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night? And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah was hoping to see the people of Nineveh utterly destroyed. He wanted to see them pay for their wickedness. He wanted judgment. He wanted retribution. He wanted to see a full display of the wrath of God against those evil Ninevites. And who could blame him if you were an Israelite? They were Israel's sworn enemies, the Assyrians. An evil, wicked people indeed. Jonah's hope in preaching the message that God gave to him to preach and then going out and sitting on this hill and, and looking over the city, he wanted to see them utterly destroyed. But God's heart 
was to bring them to himself. God is a God of sovereign grace and redemption. And he sovereignly intended for the Ninevites to repent of their evil ways and come to experience real joy, real hope, and real forgiveness in a relationship with Yahweh. That was God's heart, but it wasn't Jonah's heart. Jonah needed a realignment of his heart, and so do we. Jonah's heart was out of alignment with God in in two ways. First, he was far too concerned about the things of the world. And second, he wasn't concerned enough about the lost, about people who were far from God. He was too concerned about the things of the world. What what was Jonah most concerned about? I was, would submit to you that he was most concerned about comfort and career, safety and success. And both of those things are sacrificed here. And that's what gets him all bent out of shape. First is comfort. God provides a means for his comfort in the plant. It gives him shade And then God takes that comfort away from him by appointing a worm first to eat the plant and then appointing a scorching east wind to cause him heat stroke. And it's only when Jonah's comfort is removed that he realizes that he's been far too concerned about it. And then his career, Jonah is a prophet And Jonah wants to be a successful prophet. But he knows the minute he steps back in Jerusalem after this, it's over. Once he steps back into Jerusalem as a prophet of Yahweh, and he's preached a message of destruction to the Assyrians, and God has relented, and it didn't happen, And and much worse, they repented and the God of Israel blessed the enemies of Israel, the Assyrians. His career would be done with as a prophet in Jerusalem. No wonder he concludes, it is better for me to die than to live. Let's ask ourselves this question. What is it that the world has to offer you and I that we find captures our heart the most? What is it the world has to offer you that captures your heart the most? It might be something bad or immoral, or it might be something good that the world has to offer. And it captures your heart above anything else. It could be something sinful that you're, you, you, you find yourself uh, tempted to give yourself to, or it might be something that's good that you turned into a God because you placed it over God himself. You find delight and supreme pleasure in that rather than in God. What, what, whatever it is, friend, don't be surprised if at some point, in some measure, in some way, God asks you to put that on the altar. And sacrifice it for him. Just as he did Isaac with Abraham. In order to show you that you're 
far too concerned with the things of the world. Because the reality is, we don't often realize that we're too concerned about the things of the world until those things are taken away from us, like with Jonah. But then Jonah also learned here that not only was he too concerned about the things of the world, he wasn't concerned enough about people who were far from God. Think about it. Think about what he's just witnessed. He's just been witness to the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. An entire city has repented of their evil ways and and come back to Yahweh. Even their own king has sat in sackcloth and ashes and repented of their wickedness. And Jonah is upset about a plant. We see how out of alignment he is. His affections are out of alignment with God. He's not loving that which God loves. God loves people made in the image of God. And Jonah can't bring himself to care an iota about the people of Nineveh. And God is telling Jonah here through this object lesson that he has the sovereign right to love whomever he desires. And if he wants to save an entire city, including their king, If he wants to save an entire city full of idolaters by bringing them a message, warning them of impending judgment, and then bringing them to the point of repentance, leading them to repentance, if that's what he wants to do, then he has the sovereign right to do that. In fact, I think that's the truth that he's highlighting when he mentions the cows there at the end of verse 11. In other words, Jonah, if I want to spare a city for no other reason than it has a lot of cows, I have the sovereign right to do that because, Jonah, I am God and you are not. He's telling Jonah, 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 you're out of alignment with me. And I'm not bending to you, Jonah. You have to bend to me. I'm the true north, Jonah. You're not. And I'll show you how concerned you ought to be about the things of the world. And I'll show you how concerned you ought to be about people who are far from me. And Jonah, you are out of alignment with me on these things. I'm much, Jonah, I am much less concerned about your comfort and your career than you are. And I'm far more concerned about people who are far from me than you are. And I wonder, would God say the same sort of thing to us? Would he say, you guys are far more concerned about the things of the world than I am? You're way too worked up about comfort and career, politics and sports and whatever else it is that you give your life to. Far more concerned about those things than I am. Would he say to us, you're not concerned enough about people who are far from me. Our hearts ought to break over the lostness around us. And not just because the evil that happens offends God. Yes, that should bother us. But more than that, 
These are people who are made in the image of God, who are headed for a Christless eternity, and that ought to break our hearts. And we should have more concern for them than we have for the things of the world. Perhaps we need realignment back to God's heart and God's ways ourselves. Now, sadly, we're kind of left in a lurch here about Jonah. We don't know if he was ever realigned truly in his heart. It's not part of the story. It's not recorded for us elsewhere. We're kind of left wondering what happened to Jonah. But we don't have to wonder about ourselves because we stand on this side of the resurrection. Jesus, the one to whom this book points to over and over and over again, has come. And he's lived the perfect life. He achieved the righteousness that we must have if we are to be in God's presence. He died in our place on the cross, and he is risen from the dead. And because of this good news, because of the gospel, we can be realigned back to God. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 12 that that Jonah is a sign of what will happen to him. Pointing to Christ who who, who was to come. And throughout this short book, Jonah has been doing just that. Pointing us to Jesus. Like Jesus... Jonah was sacrificed in order to save others. Jonah was sacrificed to save the sailors. Jesus was sacrificed to save you and I, sinners like us. Like Jesus, Jonah struggled with God's will for his life. Jonah, ultimately, in that struggle with God's will, did not surrender to God's will. Instead, he ran the other way took his will over God's will. Jesus, in his humanity, mind you, he struggled with the Father's will and ultimately yielded to it. And we remember remember the picture of our Savior, our Redeemer in Gethsemane, praying on that fateful night, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but your will be done. He surrendered and yielded to the Father's will in his humanity. Like Jesus, Jonah spent three days and three nights in a dark place of death. For Jonah, it was in the belly of a fish. For Jesus, it was a borrowed grave. And like Jesus, Jonah finds himself in a storm that is later calmed a storm is calmed for Jonah when he's thrown from the fish, from, from the ship. And a storm is calmed by Jesus when he speaks to it. Peace be still. Jonah is a type of Christ who points us to Jesus with his life. And because of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary through his death, his burial, and his resurrection... We who find ourselves out of alignment with God in our affections, our motives, and our allegiances, and in our heart, 
And in whatever way we find ourselves out of alignment with him, the gospel means we can be realigned back to God. Now let's be clear. The word misalignment is not a biblical word. Misalignment with God goes by another biblical name, and is the name of the word sin. And since we're all sinners, we all have a measure of misalignment with God at one time or another. We're never in perfect alignment with God. And if we are, we're going to mess it up pretty soon afterwards. Just like when we get our car aligned at the store and we go out and we hit a curb. We're going to mess it up pretty soon. But there are two kinds of sinners here this morning in this room. Sinners who are covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and sinners who are not. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord, then the shed blood of Jesus Christ covers over your sins and you are saved, rescued, redeemed from what you deserve. You're still out of alignment because of ongoing sin in your life. And so you still need to keep repenting of that ongoing sin and trusting in the power of the gospel to realign you to the will and heart of God. But by God's grace, your sins have already been paid for at Calvary by Jesus the Lord. If, however... You're here this morning, you've never repented of your sins or trusted in Jesus Christ, placed your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, his finished work at Calvary as your only hope to be rescued from the judgment that you deserve because of your sins against God. Then your sins are yet to be paid for. They, they will be paid for. And apart from repentance and faith in Jesus you will be the one to pay for them and you will pay for them forever. And so I beg of you, surrender to Christ today. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone and he will begin the most important part of your realignment, aligning you to him and his eternity giving you new life in Christ, forgiving you of all of your sins, past, present, and future, and making you his adopted sons and daughters. But either way, we're all out of alignment with God, some a little, some a lot. And we all need the power of the gospel to be realigned to the heart and will of God. See, Jesus died to kill sin. To kill both the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives. And so if you know Jesus as Lord already, then this morning use this time to repent of whatever misalignment there may be in your heart with him. And then believe in the power of the gospel to help you be realigned to his heart and will. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord yet but want to, then friend, repent of your sins 
Repent of your misalignment with him. Trust in the power of the gospel to save you and to make you his forever. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. If you've never trusted in Christ as Lord and Redeemer and you want to, then I encourage you in the quietness of your heart as you're sitting there in that chair, tell him right now how sorry you are for your sins against him. Tell him that you believe that he is God's son and that he died for you. If you have the faith, the trust in his sacrificial death as your only hope, then express that to him now. Ask him. Ask him to forgive you of your sin debt based, based on Jesus' death on your behalf. And ask him to be your Lord, to rule you as your God, and commit to him that you will follow and obey his son for his glory. Father, we thank you for those who have just joined your family by trusting in your son, Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would help us as a church to come alongside them and to nurture their new life in Christ. Give them the courage to reach out to someone that they've come with or someone near to them or perhaps just on the card on the seat back in front of them to indicate, Father, that as best they know how, they are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness that they don't deserve. And Father, as we consider Jonah, Father, we know that we see ourselves we run away from you as well. And we run away from you because we're out of alignment with you. Father, give us true sorrow over that misalignment. Lead us to genuine repentance and confession over our sin, our ongoing sin. By the power of the gospel, Lord, help us, change us, change our affections, purify our motives, and cause us to give allegiance only to you, Lord. God, help us to be less concerned about the things of the world and more concerned about people who are far from you. And Father, we thank you. That by the power of the cross at work in us, we can be realigned to serve you and worship you for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.